1: to discuss her recently published book by MIT Press, The Pentagon, Climate Change and War Charting, The Rise and Fall of U.S. Military Missions. Professor Crawford, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Professor Crawford's bio is posted on the podcast website. On background, this past Monday, the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, or the IPCC, released the final installment of its sixth assessment report. The release that includes a 36-page summary for policymakers likely serves as the IPCC's last warning to decarbonize the world's economy in order to have a 50% chance of limiting global warming to an average of 1.5 degrees Celsius, and and thereby avoid a far more extreme global humanitarian crisis associated with greater warming. Here are two sentences from the summary quote-unquote, there is a rapidly closing window of opportunity to secure a livable and sustainable future for all, and the choices and actions implemented in this decade will have impacts now and for thousands of years, close quote. In commenting on the release, the UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres stated, the climate time bomb is ticking. This report is a clarion call to massively fast-track climate efforts. The IPCC estimates average global warming at, 5 point, at 1.5C rather, will be reached within the decade. And warming beyond this means, in part, an increasing number of climate feedback loops and cascades will threaten or cause irreversible or runaway global warming. Since the U.S. government is generally defined as an army with an insurance company, regarding the latter, listeners are well aware Via my podcast and other writings, healthcare policymakers have essentially done nothing to address the healthcare industry's annual 500 million ton carbon footprint, 9% of total U.S. greenhouse gas emissions, despite the fact that at $1.5 trillion annually, the federal government is far and away the largest purchaser of healthcare services. What about the Army? The Army or the Department of the Defense is the single largest institutional fossil fuel user in the world. The DoD, along with the military industrial complex, emits approximately 110 million tons of CO2 equivalents. That represents 80% of the federal government's annual greenhouse gas emissions. This reality is particularly disturbing and paradoxical because the DoD's contributions to the climate crisis significantly compromise its mission to ensure our nation's security. Despite the fact climate crisis-caused geopolitical instability is increasing, absent proactively working toward building climate security or climate crisis-related conflict prevention here and abroad, the Pentagon is, Professor Crawford concludes, inadvertently or deliberately militarizing climate change, that is, preparing to fight climate-related battles, that the Pentagon is helping to instigate. Finally, since I noted MIT Press, listeners are also encouraged to read Gus Spieth's related 2021 work. They knew the U.S. federal government's 50-year role in causing the climate crisis. So that, a a, a lengthy introduction, background. Uh, let me begin, uh, Professor Crawford, by trying to uh, help the listener understand um, exactly the extent to which the DOT produces greenhouse gas emissions. So you spent a good deal of time defining the numerous ways in which this occurs, an equal amount of time attempting to calculate totals. So it would be useful to start by asking you to provide a brief overview of the Pentagon along with, as I noted, the military industrial complex carbon footprint.
0: Sure. The way to think about the Department of Defense is in really um, two baskets of emissions. The first is from installations. Like any um, large organization, they have buildings that um, use energy. And for a long time, that energy was provided by coal. And they've recently begun to switch to natural gas and other ways of generating electricity and steam. Okay, so there's, that's the installation use, which is about 30% of their total greenhouse gas emissions or their carbon footprint, then the rest of it is operational. That is, all the exercises and um, obviously the prosecution of war and then transport um, to get to and from war zones and operations like exercises. So that's that's 70 percent. Most of that operational energy use is from aircraft. So um, any one plane using jet fuel would emit um, perhaps hundreds of tons of carbon dioxide equivalent, depending on what it's doing. Let's say if it's flying 17 hours, that's a lot. Um, So that's the, the basic two types, the installation energy use and the installation emissions and the emissions from operations. And then of course it, um, where this happens, uh, you know in the US, there are many bases and ins- installations and ports that the military operates in, but but the United States being um, a superpower has about 700 bases all over the world located um, you know either in places where they want to prevent conflict or where we've recently been fighting. So um, the footprint, of uh, emissions is everywhere.
1: Okay, thank you. Just so there, uh, and this, uh, you, you cite this statistic and this is frequently noted. Just to the listeners aware, the Pentagon's budget presently is about $780 billion. Just last week, uh, the Pentagon came out with a 2024 projection at $840 billion. I think you note in the book uh, that amount of money is equal to the next 14 largest uh, countries' defense budgets combined. So we have a massive um, uh, military here and stationed around the world. Uh, so worth noting. Let me, let me ask you, um, and, and I should say you do note, since I gave um, a million, million tons of emissions, you do note that the Pentagon's emissions as a um, percent of total U.S. emissions is 1%. Um, which obviously sounds like so little. But then, of course, keep in mind that the U.S. government, or, or the U- United States, rather, is the second largest producer of greenhouse gas emissions annually, uh, around 15% after China, which is about double the U.S. And, of course, the U.S. is the largest historical uh, emitter at historically about 25% of world emissions. So I do want to just add that. My next question is... Um, Putting the U.S. military's emissions in context, since I noted at the opening the U.N. uh, effort, this is the IPCC, again, a party signed a 1992 treaty, the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change. The United States is a a signature to this. And that the U.S. uh, military um, still admits the amount of carbon has to do with, and you discuss this in the book, has to do with the Kyoto Treaty from twenty from nineteen ninety seven rather. Could you provide the listener an overview of of the treaty as it relates to what the military, the U.S. military, argued and and how the treaty uh, evolved?
0: Sure. In the early nineteen nineties, there was an effort to both catalog the sources of emissions, define what greenhouse gas emissions there were, um, count them and have each country uh, give a national accounting annually to the IPCC. So if you wanted to have an accounting, you'd think everything should be in that list of uh, emissions by source. So the military in 1997 and 1998 argued that if they had to cut any of their emissions, um, it would lead to a reduction in their combat capability. And they said that they wanted an exemption for reporting their part of U.S. government emissions. So that request, um, in the form of a memo, went to the Clinton administration, and the Clinton administration decided to go along with that. So they sent to Kyoto at the negotiations for the Kyoto Protocol, which set the the goal of reducing emissions, but also the, the rules for counting emissions, uh, um, Eisenstadt got from that, uh, along with other countries, basically an agreement not to count most military emissions. They would not have to be reported to anybody. And in, if any emissions were reported at all, they could be reported as part of commercial emissions. So for the most part, though, what's omitted is what's called bunker fuels—that is, fuels transiting um, and, uh, you know, in the ocean, in the air, um, international bunker fuels—and also the emissions from making war. So, any multilateral or UN-sanctioned war, the U.S. would not have to count the emissions associated with that war. So as they pointed out at the time, the United States mostly, almost in every case, did uh, their military operations with allies. Uh, there were These were multilateral operations, so most military operations would not be counted. So that means that for the most part, there have been very few instances when the military has reported, until quite recently, what their greenhouse gas emissions were. And in 2015, at the Paris Agreement, there was uh, the idea that countries could voluntarily say what their military missions were, but there was no requirement that they be included in the national inventories.
1: And you say in the book that despite uh, the discussion and effort under the 2015 Paris Accord, the military's behavior really hasn't changed appreciably, meaning that they didn't take the bait. And under Paris, they're not more proactively reporting, correct?
0: Well, th- they have started reporting, and I include some of the most recent information in the book. In late 2021, the Department of Defense um, had to reply to an order from Congress to report their emissions for the last 10 years. They did so in a report that went um, only to Congress, and it's really not widely known, but it actually broke down their emissions by service and the DOD itself for the period of 2009 to 2019. And those um, numbers, though, um, are not widely known. They did not include any previous years in that reporting. And we basically, um, you know, prior to 2009, don't really have a good handle on what the military was emitting. Now, this is important because, as i 've done in the book, if you do a calculation of what their emissions are based on their fuel use and installation energy use, you can get a sense of the trends and If you get a sense of the trends, you realize that the argument that they made in one thousand nine hundred and ninety eight that any cut in emissions or in fuel in fuel use would lead to a reduction in combat capability is just uh, it's really an exaggeration of the effect of any cut because they have been reducing their emissions gradually, and they've at the same time been fighting wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, which um, were quite active until quite recently. Recently,
1: yes, um, uh, and in fact, I'll just note in in the book relative to uh, this date range, you have in Table Four Point One uh total emissions uh 2010 to 2019 and let's just be clear those these are as you note in the table these are scope 1 and 2 com- uh, emissions mm-hmm. that that, right. that that these numbers are scope 1 and 2 for listeners unaware uh scope 1 and 2 is the electricity uh you emit that's one the electricity you buy is two and scope 3 is your supply chain and certainly
0: no. Um, let's no it's any emission scope one is any emissions from your uh, burning fossil fuels. Correct. Doing anything. Okay. So it's not just producing electricity. Right. Yes. And, correct. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, and then scope two is what you, the emissions from what you're purchasing.
1: Right. And, and generally scope three is the lion's share of any industry's emissions. and healthcare, it's estimated somewhere between seventy to eighty percent. So we. Right. So as good a, as an improved picture we have of. The DOD's emissions—it's uh, still fairly vague um, because
0: well, there, there are two reasons for that. You know, one is um, I've I've tried to estimate the emissions from military industry, which would be the inputs, right? And um, there, if if my estimate is anywhere near right, it's about the same as the a little bit larger than the direct emissions from installations and operations. But there's also the emissions associated with the outputs that is war, and I can't calculate that. I'm not able to. I'm not smart enough. Don't have enough data to calculate how much it, uh, greenhouse gas is emitted when the United States, let's say, blows up an ISIS oil production facility or a wellhead or uh, destroys a city. So um, I, we don't know those emissions. So yes, this is a a conservative estimate that just focuses on what they do and what they buy in terms of fuel use and direct emissions. We, I cannot say what the emissions are in those other areas with any accuracy.
1: Right. And it's, it's beyond what the military blows up, but then you could conceivably include the emissions in reconstructing whatever gets blown up. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. So there's a long tail to this. Um, yes. Interesting to Kyoto, and you make note of this in the book, um, that – so this was debated in the Congress. There was a, a resolution the Senate passed. I think the vote was 95 to nothing. Uh, this was Byrd and Hegel. Uh, but you also note senators at the time, John Kerry and Joe Biden, and they were supportive of Kyoto. Um, uh, let me note that – bring us to the current period, the president, Biden, of course – had an executive order that came out soon after he was sworn in, and this was the all all of government argument. And clarify for the listener: the he he provided an exemption for uh, national security uh, entities, correct?
0: Right. So the the U.S. government's supposed to reduce their emissions and is doing so, but there is in this same executive order the possibility that a national security organization could apply for an exemption from the necessity to reduce their emissions. Now, to be clear, the DOD, as far as we know, has not applied for an exemption. Mm-hmm. They are reducing their emissions. The question I have is, could they go faster? Could they reduce more, more deeply?
1: Let me, let me ask you about what explains their uh, emission reductions over the past few years. You did note we're obviously no longer involved in Afghanistan and Iraq. There are reasons under the acronym BRAC, but there are other reasons that they would have inevitably reduced their emissions. So can you explain to the extent, what explains emissions reduction over the last few years?
0: Yeah, let me just give a longer answer to that in, in terms of time. Okay, so I was able to calculate emissions based on raw energy use, scope one and scope two emissions from 1975 to the present. and. For the period of 1975, that's just after Vietnam, and the United States has about 2,000 military bases all over the world, and um, its emissions at that point are 109 million metric tons in 1975. And then as the United States winds down from that war, the emissions go down. And then they go up during the Reagan administration, during this heightened Cold War, as the United States is exercising more in NATO. And Um, It's also engaged at the same time in a nuclear modernization program. So um, then at the end of the Cold War, U.S. military emissions declined, and they largely declined for two reasons. One, uh, relatively fewer exercises, but most important is that BRAC, Base Realignment and Closure, where (laughs) the United States military goes from having about 2,000 uh, bases all over the world to about a 1,000 bases gradually over this period. 19, Basically 1991 to uh, 2001 when the beginning of the post-9-11 wars. And at the same time um, the U.S. military is doing what every other company or corporation is doing is they're switching fuels. They're moving away from a heavy dependence on coal and moving more to natural gas and other fuels for their installation. So Insulation energy use declines. And then in addition, there's a marginal, a very small but important uh, shift to renewables and they're getting renewable energy credits. And they're getting relatively um, minor but still important efficiencies by switching vehicles to um, more fuel-efficient vehicles. And, you know, it's uh, these... uh, Reductions, especially the reduction in the number of bases and operations, but also better efficiencies and uh, moving away from coal mean that at their peak, which in 1991 during the Gulf War, this is the peak emissions that I was able to calculate was 100 million metric tons for that year, annual emissions, hmm. CO2 equivalent. It and now we're at 51 million metric tons the last two years. That's a significant decline. Now, again, they said that they couldn't uh, report and they couldn't reduce because that would mean that they'd be less combat efficient. Well, um, as we know, what happened is um, we had these major wars. And uh, the the reason why the United States lost, um, if you want to argue that, in Afghanistan, it, that it did, or... Um, it didn't do as well as they might have was not because of lack of fuel. It was um, because of the resistance that they met. So um, I would think that we wouldn't, uh, you know, give too much credence to the fact, uh, to the argument that it's, um, you know, we can't report emissions. We can report emissions. And, and they have engaged in reductions since 1991 and the 2001. Uh, another peak in emissions, they have reduced because of these things that I've talked about.
1: Okay, thank you again. Relative to what explains the decrease, there are numerous other uh, issues here. You do note in the book that we, the Navy retired eight non-nuclear carriers, although you could argue we traded one problem, uh, fossil fuels, for uh, uh, nuclear waste, which is a 200,000-year problem at the moment. Uh, relative to Afghanistan you do provide some very interesting color as it relates to trying to fuel that war via trucks driving through Pakistan and under constant attack uh, fuel trucks so th- this is a very detailed uh complicated uh, issue let's let's go to uh, current status and the last few chapters of your book very interesting relative to where where the military uh Is going where they should go, and you suggested saying that they could do more. And this goes towards this issue you discussed at some length: the sanity or insanity of the U.S. still protecting um, the Persian Gulf, whether that's strategically necessary any longer. But but the other way you phrase this as there's there's seems to be, and I read into this that there is an internal debate within the DOD relative to there's percent split of resources to build resilience. Uh, versus mitigation, meaning working toward towards getting to net zero. On the former, meaning resilience. So you do give two great examples of extreme weather events taking ostensibly taking out Tyndall Air Force Base in Florida and Offutt uh, Air Force Base, which ironically is the home of the Strategic Air Command uh, in the Midwest. So uh, c- could you discuss this tension relative to resilience versus mitigation? Mm-hmm.
0: Right. So. There's a lot in your question. Just to go back to the question of whether or not the United States should be defending the Persian Gulf. Thank you. In the uh, 1970s, there was a concern after the oil embargo in 1973 that the United States would be vulnerable to a cutoff of oil from the Persian Gulf. And uh, then in 1979, when Russia invaded Afghanistan, I'm sorry, the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan and the Shah of Iran was toppled. There was also fear that those two events would lead to a decreased oil supply from the Persian Gulf. Now, uh, the response by the Carter administration was to um, beef up its military capabilities to intervene in the Persian Gulf. They called it then a rapid deployment force, and this was changed to central command. So Central Command's mission is to be able to intervene in that region, and the Central Command also includes Afghanistan, Uh, in that region should trouble break out. And this includes at any one time an aircraft carrier and its eight to ten surface ships, as well as bases and prepositioned material. The capacity to intervene to protect access to oil is as you know, you suggested ironic because we, we shouldn't burn the oil. It's not good to burn it at this point. But it's increasingly less needed. In other words, because uh, the United States and other countries have transitioned to alternative energy like wind and solar, geothermal, and because of greater efficiencies and uh, with vehicles and greater domestic supply, the United States has been importing less oil from the Persian Gulf than in the past. And many other countries are also decreasing their dependence. So uh, the, the thing is we don't need to defend access to that oil. It's not so vital. Um, and if in any case there were a country that had a monopoly, they would still want to sell their oil. The point of pumping the oil is, of course, to sell it. And then the other question you're asking about is the Pentagon's sort of tension between um, reducing their emissions and uh, saying that, okay, climate change is a fait accompli and what we must do then is to prepare for the consequences of climate change. And, And that's really the way the world is right now. Climate change is on track. The question is how bad it will get, and that's what that UN ipcc report is about you know mm-hmm. how bad will we let it get um so we have to react we have to respond we have to prepare and on the other hand how much more of a greenhouse gas are we going to put up in the atmosphere to make it get mm-hmm. worse or how, how 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 fast can we reduce what i'm saying in the book is the pentagon has essentially said climate change is coming to a neighborhood near you and what we we don't really And At least they've been saying this until recently. We don't really need to worry so much about our emissions. We need to be prepared to act in this new environment, this hotter environment, this wetter environment, this environment where we can't train as much and where um, the oceans have changed because sea levels have risen. We need to react. And that's the adaptation part and resilience. And what I would suggest that they need to do, since they are a huge emitter, their emissions annually are as large as countries like Denmark or Portugal. Uh, if they could reduce their emissions further, then that would help us overall in two ways. One, uh, their direct emissions would, would go down. But two, that scope three that you're talking about, the all of that other emissions that are caused because we have a large military the largest, most capable um, and uh, destructive, potentially destructive military the world has ever seen in certain respects. So if we reduce the size of the military and the military itself says that they have 20% excess capacity at bases, they could reduce their emissions. That's the irony. I don't call it sane or insane. I just think it's ironic and certainly it's unfortunate that What we do ostensibly to protect ourselves actually makes us less secure. And that's the point that I'm trying to drive.
1: Right. Yes. You use the phrase at some point, we're on this treadmill of environmental destruction and that uh, continued military supremacy via – and you suggest via whether we're entering a new Cold War with China or Russia may come, quote unquote, you say, at the cost of a livable planet – and, and I did appreciate your discussion about the influence military spending actually has on the larger economy. Um, mm-hmm. in that the larger economy or the remainder of the economy tends to mimic, uh, processes that the military, industrial process, the military is forwarded so that by reducing the military's uh, consumption, there's, you don't use this word, but there's a knock on effect as it relates to larger or the remainder of the U.S. economy. Um, so points, uh, all, all well taken. You, you conclude your, your volume, um, uh, with some pretty, uh, straightforward language. And I'm quoting here, the Pentagon has been strategically inflexible and blind. The armed force and political have not put away the tools and habits of mind that got us here in the first place. Military is inadvertently, perhaps, as I noted in the intro, deliberately militarizing climate change. Um, you, your last two sentences I found uh, appropriate. Um, the path to climate security does not have to lie in preparing for climate war. And then you t- you, you twist the 4th century uh, Latin or Roman aphorism. If we want peace, we must prepare for peace. The Latin, of course, is we must prepare for war. So under the Biden administration, the military is under a certain amount of, of pressure and um, to work towards the latter, which, again, is uh, mitigation. You note that there are these reports that are required. Uh, they came out last year, February, a year ago last month, of a climate strategy report.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, what's, what's your reading of available documentation as it relates to, um, and dare I say, the military taking a leadership role uh, for the country in decarbonizing?
0: Well, I I think they are decarbonizing. My hope is that they'll go more quickly and deeply at reducing installations and operations and exercises and that they'll switch to alternative fuels. I don't think that they should be leading us, though. I think that anything that the technology that the military needs is, uh, for the most part, much more than civilian needs. So they have to fly further and faster than commercial aircraft. Um, Their boats have to, uh, you know, be capable of operating in extreme environments. They need batteries um, that are more intense than what we need uh, in terms of storing capacity. So I don't want them to be the leaders in innovation, but they can help us shift to a greener economy just by themselves uh, changing the way that they operate. We have everything we need in the civilian sector already to, you know, put up solar panels, put up windmills, to switch to geothermal, to have greater efficiencies. What well, we don't need them to lead. What we need to do is reduce the amount of resources that go to the military, especially if they're unnecessary or wasteful, so that those resources can be put to civilian decarbonization.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I, I will say that as far as pledges goes, the the army has is mimicking the administration's goal, meaning the army has a set goal of a fifty percent reduction uh, by twenty thirty compared to an 05 benchmark, and a net zero at installations by a uh, forty five. My last question for you, is, since you're an academic, um, I, I have to say I found this surprising, um, but you you note several times in the in the volume that scholars are divided over the relationship between climate change and war. Right. Uh, I, I find that hard to believe. Um, yeah. I mean, no, if you just look at the Southern no border,
0: well, right. I mean, no, so, so listen, in please. I want to, I want to be really clear here, David, please. Um, the argument that climate change causes war is not shown by the evidence Many things cause war, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, the and that that argument that climate change causes war comes from an older literature that says resource scarcity causes war, mm-hmm. and that actually didn't that wasn't supported by the evidence very much either. What is true is that a government's capacity to deal with um, stressful situations like um, migration or uh, flooding or fires, is going to be increasingly taxed right. as those events occur. So in some places, uh, governments will not be able to take care of their people in the way that, that they should. And that doesn't mean that fighting will break out. Um, it could, but the, the, the key thing here is state capacity. Right, so to the extent that states um, don't have the capacity, we can help them. Any a, a great country like the United States could help. Mm-hmm. But the, the argument that people are just going to start fighting because they're too hot or because um, they lack water, uh, I don't think so. The evidence, for example, between India and Pakistan, two nuclear-armed countries, is that they don't—they're not fighting. Uh, and they, and a few people are killed in this conflict every year. Um, they're not fighting over water, even though that is something that they both depend on. They, they depend on this shared water resource. They have an agreement about how to manage the water, the Indus Valley Treaty. And what they do is when there are issues, they talk about them in a dispute resolution mechanism. For the most part, we can... By thinking ahead, avoid conflicts that could come from water scarcity or uh, lots of migration. I think that it's, it's a way to scare people to say that climate-caused war is coming to a neighborhood near you, but it's not necessarily so.
1: Right. That becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy relative to the military's direction and, 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 and their behavior. So I appreciate, I appreciate you making that point. So we'll end with that. Okay. Uh, we're at about our time. I genuinely appreciate this overview. Excellent work, uh, very interesting relative to the other side, as I define the U.S. government—the other side of the uh, the Army side of the definition of the federal government. So I wish you every success with the book, and I thank you for your time. Well, thank you.
0: You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast, hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic. Or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, the healthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.